This is an ABC podcast. In many countries, women judges face huge obstacles and sometimes the threat of violence. We still have these outdated yet strong traditions and misguided beliefs that women are not allowed to do certain jobs, but slowly breaking those barriers and it's slowly been accepted that women can be judges, women can be magistrates. Her vehicle was shot at and then she was hit. She was hit in one of her thighs. It was on her way out of work, leaving her court. Hello, Damien Carrick with you. Today on RN Summer, the second of a two-part special focusing on women judges. And a warning, the program contains descriptions of virginity tests and sexual assault. In part one, we focused on how, after the fall of Kabul to the Taliban in 2021, the International Association of Women Judges was instrumental in helping their members escape Afghanistan. But the organisation is also involved in the much more everyday challenges faced by its 6,500 members. Justice Susan Glazebrook of the New Zealand Supreme Court is the president of the International Association of Women Judges. Obviously, women judges face the same sort of discrimination and sexual harassment, harassment, um, bullying issues that are faced by uh, women everywhere in the workplace. And of course, those issues can be faced by men in the workplace as well. They also face issues in respect of perhaps being taken seriously in terms of promotions within the the judiciary. And there's also that isolation where you only have a few women judges and you're in a largely male environment, and that can be quite difficult to deal with, I think. About 35% of judges in New Zealand are women. Justice Glazebrook wishes it was 50%, but she also acknowledges that in 2022, the lack of racial diversity and socioeconomic diversity among New Zealand judges are perhaps even bigger concerns. Diversity of both experience, gender, socioeconomic groupings means that justice reflects the society that it serves, but it also means that those people's experiences will come through in their decisions so that they they may well understand particular litigants better than somebody who hasn't had those same experiences. Australia's closest neighbour, Papua New Guinea, has a long way to go when it comes to gender equality in its courts. Rosie Johnson is the acting president of the PNG Judicial Women's Association. She's the principal magistrate of the Port Moresby Family and Juvenile Court. It is still male-dominated. In the lower judiciary, where we have the district courts, there are 25 women magistrates out of a total of 77 magistrates throughout the country. So that is 32% of magistrates are are women in the lower courts. In the higher courts, the National Supreme Court, there are 11 women judges out of a total of 48. So that gives us a total of 22% of judges in the higher courts is, is women. So a pretty low percentage. Very, very low. What obstacles exist for women judges and, and magistrates in PNG? 
we still have these outdated yet strong traditions and misguided beliefs that still prevails in our national psyche that women are not allowed to do certain jobs, but slowly breaking those barriers and it's slowly been accepted that women can be judges, women can be magistrate, women can be pilots, those kind of things. Do you have the respect and support of, of the male judges? Um, I would say yes and, and no. It really depends on individuals. Can you tell me about what's happened maybe to you and, and some of your colleagues and how they've experienced those sorts of obstacles? I think it's just to do with favouritism and, and nepotism is a norm. And um, we still have to work hard to make our way up the hierarchy, of, regardless of where we are. You're not recognised or the work isn't recognised perhaps as it might be for male judges? Uh, no. We, we are recognised for what we do, but we have to work hard. You're the acting head of the PNG Judicial Women's Association. And, and uh, look, women judges have been very, very important in law reform in Papua New Guinea. I understand you are very important in introducing domestic violence legislation in PNG. When was that legislation implemented and, and what changes did you achieve? What, what does this legislation contain? In about 2012-13, there was a lot of consultation going on because there was uh, a lot of domestic violence going on and that needed to be addressed. And we had two magistrates. They were on the team that went around the country uh, doing consultation. That came up with a report. The outcome of that report is now the, the Family Protection Act of 2015 that um, deals with um, domestic violence issues. And I understand these two judges that you speak about, um, the members of the PNG Judicial Women's Association, who, who conducted that inquiry and, and, and who travelled around the country, two judges very well loved who've since passed away. That speaks to the very important role of women judges in, in pushing for law reform. Yes, yes, because they know what it's like. And when you're out there, you feel what other women are feeling. You put yourself in their shoes and so you're able to better deal with the situation and hear their cries and be able to now push that agenda to where we are now. How effective has that domestic violence legislation brought in in 2015 been? The law in itself is good. It is a very good law. There's no questions about that. The problem is about the enforcement or the maybe issues with... Um, Police not assisting with service of the, the, the court documents on the perpetrator and then the execution where there is a breach. A survivor comes to the police station, then police tells them that, oh, we don't have fuel. We can't do this run. So somebody has to pay for fuel. Where does the money for the fuel come? So the victim, the survivor who's there at the police station tends to be if she has no money for fuel, 
to hand to the police for field and that's it, she probably has to go away. These are realistic issues, real issues that we're faced with. And when you say money for fuel, is that effectively a bribe or is that the police genuinely need the money to put in their car to go out to the house or or the property? I'm not sure whether it's bribe or it's it's real. I can't really say that, but it, it, it is happening. So these are not just been plucked from the air. These are actual experiences that happen in the courtroom. And we are told by the survivors. And coming to court can be quite dangerous too, can't it? You know, they're very basic facilities at, at courtrooms in Papua New Guinea. So people who are coming forward, complainants who are coming forward, aren't necessarily separated from perpetrators or, or alleged perpetrators. Our court structure is very unfriendly. Survivors that come to court and file for protection orders just take their cue. They wait outside in the public. There is no guarantee for their safety. And we have incidences where perpetrators have attacked the survivors outside the courtroom. They're all just there in in public, in the same foyer, waiting for, for their names to be called to come into court. So it is it is sad. It needs to be changed so we can cater for this category of people. And I understand if you're comfortable talking about it. As a young woman, you experienced domestic violence. I'm wondering if you can, as much as you're comfortable, talk to that and how that affected your response to these issues. I have no issues with that. It's about we know we have to come out and tell the world that, yes, I am now a magistrate making decisions, but I was a victim. When I was a, a lawyer already and living in a province, but I was beaten up by my partner, and not only once, but on a couple of, of times. And every time I, ca- I came to the police station, that would be in 1998, 99, 2000, thereabouts. And every time police would tell me that Oh, who assaulted you? And I said, oh, the father of my child. Okay, go back home. That's a domestic matter. Go and resolve it between yourselves. And I'm bleeding. So how do I go back bleeding? And, and the law, the police, they're supposed to be enforcing the law, are just telling me to go back to the village. And so I had to leave that relationship and just keep moving on. It was really tough. And so I had to leave, leave the village environment for good. I decided I had had enough because nobody was coming forward and helping me. The police there, even though they knew that I was a lawyer going in, in and out of court, they saw things differently. So I had to come to the city where I thought it was better living away from all those um, people who were like-minded, who saw things differently and more or less always took custom into consideration. And they were about maintaining this relationship because this man is from that place and we have a a distant uh, relationship with the family. So we cannot say anything to him. So in a way, he was encouraged to continue to beat me up. 
And that experience, how does that inform the way you deal with complainants when they come to your court? I deal with the complaints that come to court in a very sensitive way. I'm very sensitive to the issues they are going through because I put myself and I see what I have gone through myself. And so that, that puts me in a better position to see how they're suffering. So obviously a big focus of your um, law reform agenda and um, reform agenda is to focus on domestic violence and the resourcing and the attitudes. Are there other areas that women judges and magistrates are also fighting for reform in? Are there other things that you're looking for to change the status and, and the well-being of women? Um, we need to have more women on the bench. We need to have um, more women judges and magistrates appointed. To complement that, I think we, is a, from my personal perspective, or we should have women in parliament. Because if we're trying to work our way up there to pass legislation, it's all male-dominated. There's no women politician in this current parliament. There are no women parliamentarians in the current PNG parliament. No. So if we're fighting for women issues and changes to the law to accommodate women and children issues, and you take it to parliament, we don't have a voice up there. So we can have magistrates and judges increased number. But we, we will be doing what we can do in the area of law and the courts. But to push for the political changes, changes in the law and amendments and all that, it happens in parliament and we don't have a voice up there. Traditionally, judges are meant to be not political and not get involved in public debates and policy debates. But in PNG, women judges do enter that space and talk very openly about these issues. Uh, no, no, we are not supposed to. We are not supposed to affiliate to any political body and all that. But through our association, through this body, PNG Judicial Women's Association. We can use this association to collaborate with other like-minded associations to push for women's uh, women's agenda. I believe we can make inroads. And you can do that in a way which doesn't affect the separation of powers. You're there just to kind of advocate for the legal rights of, of half the population. Yes, yes, yes. Principal Magistrate Rosie Johnson, the Acting President of the PNG Judicial Women's Association. You're listening to The Law Report with me, Damien Carrick. Today, part two of a special series on women judges. Now, that dignified and restrained audio from back in January is in fact the sound of a judicial glass ceiling being smashed. Issued by the Supreme Judicial Council. Judge Aisha Malik recently has been appointed as the first woman to the Supreme Court of Pakistan. She faced quite a considerable backlash at the time. New South Wales District Court Judge Robin Tupman is the Secretary and Treasurer of the International Association of Women Judges. 
Judge Tupman is speaking about the opposition from some lawyers and judges in Pakistan to the elevation of Justice Malik to that country's Supreme Court. These groups argued that there was a long-standing practice that the position should be given to the most senior judge from the lower courts, in other words, the longest-serving judge. I am certain that part of it was a degree of gender bias because they'd never had a woman in that position. It is a very male-dominated society. A lot of the backlash was cast as um, wanting to continue with a system of seniority that existed in the Pakistani court promotion systems. But frankly, um, I'm sure that Justice Malik wouldn't say this herself, but I'm prepared to say that I, I see a spectre of gender discrimination in some of the um, opposition to her appointment at the time. I thought also that um, when that was unpacked, in fact, there'd been many, many similar situations where that seniority rule had not been followed, but nobody had really remarked on it. That is definitely the case. And also there was actually a decision already that said that moving from the court that she was at to the Supreme Court did not actually amount to a movement that attracted the seniority rule. Can I get you to reflect on her contribution to justice in um, Pakistan? I think early last year she made international headlines with a, a very, very important court ruling. Yes, there used to be a test applied, the two-finger test. And this was a test that was given to women who complained that they'd been sexually assaulted or raped. And this was apparently what was done to determine whether or not they were virgins. And when you can work out for yourself what the two-finger test involved. But um, this was apparently a way of determining whether or not they were virgins, because if they weren't, well, then they clearly therefore consented and hadn't been raped. I mean, you just have to say it to realise that it's ludicrous. But it was applied. And she made a decision that um, did away with that test uh, because it clearly was very discriminatory and also not based in science. Now, this is one of the things that the IWJ has always been very much involved with and our local chapters as well, the idea of judging with a gender perspective. It may be that others hadn't thought about that. I mean, Aisha did, or Justice Malik did, and brought that kind of gender perspective to her job as a very high-level judge as it was at the time and and applied that, and, and, and it was um, overturned quite rightly in the 21st century. It's absurd that it was still being applied. She described it as, quote, humiliating and of no forensic value. And uh, in her ruling, she described the procedure as, quote, highly invasive um, and, quote, of no scientific and medical requirement. Well, of, I, mean, I mean, of course it is. I mean, the, I mean, the two-finger test was that, that somebody would, uh, would insert their fingers into the vagina of a, of a girl who'd complained that she'd been raped and that would somehow or other test her virginity. And if she weren't a virgin, therefore she consented. She made um, international headlines by overturning and um, ruling illegal this uh, profoundly disturbing and, and distressing um, procedure. Yeah. Your association has some really remarkable figures as members, people like Ayesha Malik. So the idea of the gendered perspective is that by having a diversity on the bench, a gender diversity or any other kind of diversity, and you have people on the bench who are reflective of the populations who are coming before them in court, you can understand their needs and their situation and make sure the justice system in turn kind of can incorporate their needs. Yeah, 
you sort of see it from the perspective of lived lives. Judge Tupman, can I get you to talk to a recent case that came before your courts where the use of language was, you felt very important and needed to be clarified because it gets back to that gender perspective. Okay, so it's not just a question of language, but it's a bit of an understanding of of women. I did a a sentence case, and it was a fairly nasty and unpleasant case in which there were a couple of women who'd done a, a vaginal search of a person of another woman who they believed had stolen some drugs from them and secreted them in her vagina. You don't need to know any more than that. It was done somewhat forcefully in which they inserted their hand into her vagina. Part of the agreed facts that is agreed between both the Crown and those representing the offender that nobody had ever looked at and thought, well, they've obviously looked at it but hadn't thought about it, said that the offender had searched the woman's uterus Now, I just looked at it and thought, well, they clearly don't know what they're talking about. And as any of your listeners would know, to have anything actually go into your uterus is an excruciatingly painful experience, let alone the experience of having anything come out of your uterus during the process of childbirth. And it normally doesn't happen until there's a cervix that's been dilated to 10 centimetres or something has been inserted through the cervix. To suggest that somebody during the course of committing an offence like this would be able to search a woman's uterus is just ridiculous. And I asked them whether they really meant that and they looked at me doe-eyed and I told them that they clearly didn't understand the female anatomy and this was a mistake. And it really did offend me that any Anybody could actually put that down in a formal set of facts in a serious court matter because it's clearly and utterly wrong. Now, whether anybody apart from a woman would notice that, I suspect not. And that's, I guess, a practical demonstration of why the the gendered perspective from the bench is so important because otherwise these sorts of misunderstandings... Well, stupidity, actually. (laughs) It's just stupid and it's a misunderstanding of female anatomy. That's another issue that does annoy me a lot. You know, we're very coy about the terms that we use to describe the female anatomy and sometimes it's very important that we get it right, particularly in sexual assault cases so that we know what we're actually talking about in terms of the female anatomy and we're all a bit coy about it and I don't really know why and we shouldn't be and women I suspect um, more comfortable with that than men and probably need to speak up about it. And, you know, big picture, these sorts of misunderstandings, stupidities, uh, if they're not addressed in the legal system, they can lead to when people come before the justice system looking for justice, it means that they won't get it in equal measure depending on their gender. Well, yes, that's the whole point of of making sure that, that there is the gender diversity, at least on the bench, so that everybody's lived lives gets reflected in what comes before the court and the way issues are taken into account in the courts. And this is both in relation to the litigants who come before the court, who on the whole in criminal matters are men, but also are uh, the complainants and victims of offences of domestic violence or sexual assault and the like, who on the whole, the majority of whom are women. New South Wales District Court Judge Robin Tupman, Secretary and Treasurer of the International Association of Women Judges. In the Caribbean nation of Haiti, the percentage of women judges is just 11% and the percentage of women magistrates, just 19%. Judge Nora Jean-Francois is the first woman to serve as the President of the Court of Appeal. She says women judges support and organise themselves to avoid being entangled in Haiti's endemic corruption. 
but she says there's no way of avoiding the widespread gang violence. Absolutely. Political and gang violence affects the work of all judges, so women judges are not spared. Last year, or about two years ago, in the north of Haiti, a woman judge had to leave the country after she was a victim of gang violence, so she left the judiciary and the country. Not long ago, at the end of January, a woman judge of a jurisdiction near the capital received a bullet in one of her thighs. Her vehicle was shot at and then she was hit. She was hit in one of her thighs. It was on her way out of work, leaving her court. She wasn't driving in her car, the car was stationary, but she was in the vehicle and she was shot. So gang violence is devastating in Haiti and women judges and magistrates are not spared. Judge Nora Jean-Francois says there's a lack of female representation across all levels of the justice system, not just on the bench. And this impacts on women complainants who seek justice. The obstacles are the reception. If the person needs justice and presents themselves, the reception leaves much to be desired. And then there are other obstacles. There is an insufficiency of legal aid for women who can't pay for the services of a professional lawyer. And then there's the trivialisation of certain cases, in particular cases of sexual aggression and rape. For example, when a woman is a victim of rape, sometimes they're asked, what were you looking for? Why did you wear so few clothes? Because it's mostly men who are asking the questions. There are women too, but women are underrepresented, from the police through to the public prosecutor's office to the investigative office. There are more men than women. Judge Nora Jean-Francois focuses a great deal of her energy on boosting the number of women working in the sector and also training the mostly men who currently run the system to better respect and understand fundamental human rights. She says her membership of the International Association of Women Judges and the support it provides is very important to helping her achieve these goals. The work of the International Association of Women Judges is important, and I've been a member of this association for almost 24 years. It encourages its members to form associations in their own countries. It works not only to increase the number of women judges around the world, but also on issues related to the respect of fundamental human rights. For example, the trafficking in human beings, gender discrimination, sexual violence, domestic violence, and so on. It's easy to see an association like this as a bit of a, I don't know, a trade union or a spokes group for promoting women in the judiciary. But my experience is that it's very focused on access to justice for women and girls. And so there's a lot of work that has been done and will continue to be done by the International Association on women's different experience of the law, whether that is as a member of the legal profession or a judge or as a party or a person appearing before the court or seeking justice from a court. So I think that education um, with a very uh, female focus is, is one aspect of it. And the other is to build and strengthen the connections between women judges across the globe. A final word there from Judge Flo Kingham, President of the Land Court of Queensland. She's the head of the Australian chapter of the International Association of Women Judges. 
Before her, you heard from Judge Nora Jean-Francois. She's the first woman to serve as President of Haiti's Court of Appeal. A very big thank you to my ABC colleagues Claudette Worden and Fanu Filali. Don't forget the program is available as a podcast from all your favourite platforms or, of course, available from the ABC Listen app. And a big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and to technical producer Matthew Crawford. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.